Well, it's good to, to be back here in Dillon this evening, being in uh, Conway this morning. And uh, as you can see in your bulletin, we will be in Zechariah again. Uh, Zechariah will be in chapter 3 of Zechariah um, for our continued study in the, the book of Zechariah. Uh, and if you uh, have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. If you don't, and you'd like to use a pew Bible, our passage tonight uh, begins on page 1009. You tell them getting old, I have to wait for my eyes to adjust so I can see. Um, <laughs> but uh, 1009 in your pew Bibles, if you have your own Bible again, um, probably going to Matthew and then just going back two books might be the easiest way to find it. You have Malachi and then Zechariah, but we'll be looking at chapter 3. And reading from God's Word in Zechariah chapter 3, we read, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold... On the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Thus far, God's holy word. Uh, Let's go to him again in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to bless this time in your word. We ask you um, to be with us. Uh, Lord, we pray your word would continue um, to work and be at work amongst those who believe by your grace. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, as I came to the church this morning to print something off before heading to Conway, I had the uh, the fun experience, of kind of reliving my childhood of going to Pastor Matt uh, because I decided to wear a bow tie today, and I don't know how to wear, I don't know how to wear, 
uh, maybe not, but I don't know how to tie a bow tie. I can do a, a necktie just fine, but a bow tie is a little more difficult for me. And uh, as Matt was in a very fatherly way tying the bow tie for me, um, he asked if I was gonna, going to wear my robe uh, to Conway. As in Conway, the, the head pastor, Kyle Brent, uh, does wear a robe uh, in their morning service in preaching. And uh, I told him I was not going to. Kyle said it was up to me, and, and uh, so I just wore uh, what I usually wear. And, uh, but um, it, it reminded me, uh, this passage sort of reminded me why, again, Pastor Matt and I in the morning and Pastor Kyle Brent and Presbyterians and many others in general have worn our robes, our Geneva gowns, uh, in the morning worship service. And uh, I know I've brought this up before uh, here, but it's not actually because we want to be high church and, and everything else. Uh, it's actually to differentiate us from priests. Uh, Pastor Matt and myself and, and Kyle Brent and the rest of us who are teaching elders or ministers in the PCA and, and Presbyterians, we are not priests. We are teachers. We're ministers of the word. We uh, no longer have priests because we have one high priest that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see in our passage this morning uh, a lot dealing with priests. And again, the Geneva gown, the pure just black gown, was originally used by the Reformers and the Puritans uh, to differentiate themselves from priests, to show we're just teachers. It's the garb of a teacher and not the garb of a priest. And that is why uh, we have those, and of course just come down by tradition. But it's to show that we are not priests. And again, as we look at our passage this morning, we'll, uh, this evening, I'm sorry, we'll be looking at the fact that we do have a great priest, but that priest is the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who's in glory, uh, ministering even now. As we even confess together in uh, our Confession of Faith this evening from the Westminster Confession of Faith, or from the Shorter Catechism, I should say. Well, back uh, in Zechariah, uh, in our text tonight, just to give a little bit of background again to uh, reorient us to what is going on. Uh, if you, when we read Zechariah, it's very uh, profitable, helpful to uh, go and read the book of Ezra and to get the historical context of, of what is going on. And uh, what is going on is that the people have been brought back to Jerusalem uh, after they've been sent into exile by Nebuchadnezzar and, and by God himself. Uh, you could say either one, and both are equally true, that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple and, and sent the people out of the land into exile. And at the same time, you could say that God did it because it's true. They both, uh, we have this dual uh, God's sovereignty and also working through uh, the, the free actions uh, of men where this happened. But God in his grace, as he had promised, he, this would not be final, and he would bring the people back after 70 years. And he does so, and he brings them back. Uh, as we read about in Ezra, that Cyrus is, is stirred up to uh, send the people back uh, and to come and rebuild the temple. Well, they did come back. Uh, unfortunately and sadly, only a small uh, fraction of them do come back. Most of them decided that uh, Persia was a whole lot nicer than Jerusalem, of course. At that time, it certainly was, and most of them stayed there, but some did come back, and that's why we have these long lists as we read Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, memorializing the people who did go back to work on the temple and, and the wall in the city. 
Uh, but here uh, with Zechariah again, going back to Ezra, uh, they've come back to build the temp- rebuild the temple. They face some opposition in rebuilding the temple, and they give up. Uh, they give in to the opposition, and they stop rebuilding the temple, uh, even though the Lord had sent them there to rebuild it. And now again in Zechariah, 18 years have passed since they came back and began rebuilding the temple, and God has stirred up Zechariah and his compatriot Haggai, uh, just the book right before this one, a few months from one another, and they're encouraging the people to get back up, and God is even rebuking the people uh, through them to get back to work on his house, his temple, because they had been uh, fast at work on their own houses. And we read about that in, in Haggai, how they were paneling their houses, and they'd become actually quite content not to go back to the temple now, but they're being, uh, they're being encouraged to get back to work. And by the grace of God, as we read Ezra, we see that they do eventually get back to work, and they do indeed finish uh, rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed. And we come to these visions in Zechariah. He has these visions, and we come to one of them tonight where we're going to see uh, a little bit of this imagery that sometimes Zechariah and Daniel and so forth are, are known for, this apocalyptic imagery that's very vivid and sometimes strange to us. A lot of it is symbolic. It involves vivid pictures and numbers and, and so forth. And, uh, and we're going to see that tonight a little bit. But we're going to see uh, the biggest issue um, in this particular passage, and that has to do with how an unholy people And in particular, uh, it will be focused in on how an unholy priest, high priest, can stand in a holy God's presence and minister before him uh, for God's people. How can somebody unholy be before a holy God who must punish sin? Uh, How can we tonight stand here and feel confident being in God's presence when uh, we read the Bible and we see Adam and Eve, after they sin, they are driven from the Garden of Eden. Um, When people tremble to be before God because they rightly understand uh, that they should not be there. As as Jesus tells Peter to put out for a catch of fish in the gospel, and then uh, Peter being the, the seasoned fisherman that he is and catching nothing all night, and then he brings in the net, and it's breaking at its seams because it's so full of fish. And if you remember that, Peter does what he really should have done, which is he falls on his knees and tells Jesus to get away from him because he's a sinful man. Uh, He realizes he he doesn't belong in Jesus' presence uh, because he's a sinful man. Uh, That's the big question is, uh, what do we do? How is it that we can be in God's presence? So, Uh, We're going to look at at three uh, pretty brief points. Uh, I tried to alliterate them as good as I could. So our first point this evening is the problem, Uh, the problem that we have. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 for the problem that we have. Now, this particular vision, again, begins with Joshua, and this is not Joshua, the uh, attendant of Moses. This is Joshua who is the high priest during the time of Zechariah. And we see in chapter 3, as we, can, as we begin right there, that he's standing uh, before the Lord. 
So if you look at chapter 3, it says, then, and this is Zechariah talking, then he, that is God, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And if we stop right there before we jump ahead and get to Satan and everything else, uh, we think that we're going to see the high priest ministering. This is the word for standing before. Uh, This is the language that's used throughout the Bible for somebody, a high priest or a prophet who's standing before the Lord to minister. If you remember when we went through Elijah and Elisha, the wives of Elijah and Elisha, uh, we talked about Elijah, who, who stood in the presence of his God. And that's the language we see here. And, and maybe Zechariah is thinking, or the reader is thinking right as they read this, as they begin, that this, this is language of a, the high priest. Again, this has to do with the temple. Maybe it's a vision of the temple uh, being reconstructed. Uh, and it's kind of a positive picture that we see. But as we continue in this verse, we see something negative as well. We see, again, Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, but we see after that in the second part of verse 1, it says, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So Joshua's not alone, and we realize it's not him standing in the temple. It's him standing before the Lord, before Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord, and just for the sake of not qualifying this every... uh, It goes back and forth in this passage about talking about the angel of the Lord, and Matt has already talked about this as this being pre-incarnate Christ. We'll talk about the angel of the Lord, and then we'll variously refer to it just as the Lord or Yahweh as well, so I don't want to keep coming back to I'm just going to refer to the angel of the Lord as God. So he's standing before God. Again, we see it's God, and it's differentiated from God, so it is sort of an echo of the Trinity we see here, um, but uh, I'm just going to refer to the one who's on the throne as God. So we see Joshua And he's standing before God who is seated on the throne. But again, he's not alone. And we realize this is God sitting as judge and Joshua standing before him. And there's somebody who's accusing him. It's a courtroom scene that's being described here. And you you may know that Satan, uh, the the root from Satan, it just means the accuser. Uh, The accuser in, in a very Hebrew way. Uh, verse 1, I'm sorry, yes, verse 1, uh, when it says Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him, is really just saying the accuser standing there to accuse him. Or we could say Satan standing there to Satanize him. Uh, it's The accuser is doing what he does. He's accusing uh, Joshua. So again, Joshua is standing in this heavenly courtroom scene, and Satan is accusing him. And the problem, the big problem here is that What Satan is saying about Joshua is true. Uh, Satan is a liar. Uh, The devil is a liar. Uh, We read that in in John. Uh, The devil is a liar and the the father of lies. But uh, probably our biggest problem is not the fact that the devil is a liar. It's probably the fact that the devil accuses us. And the, the biggest problem is that he's correct when he accuses us. He's not just telling stories. He's pointing out what is true, that we're guilty and do not belong in God's presence. And that is what he's pointing out to God uh, about Joshua, the high priest. Now, if we jump ahead to verse 3, just skip verse 2 for right now, uh, we notice that Joshua is wearing filthy or soiled garments. And this is very uh, tame 
language for or translation of, of what, in fact, he's wearing uh, or what his garments are, are tainted with. Uh, in fact, he's wearing the priestly garments that the high priest would wear in the Old Testament. And uh, the idea here is that his garments are covered with human excrement, uh, like a child who has uh, a dirty diaper. And complete throughout his garments, there's, there's human excrement and even vomit it's used for in the Old Testament as well. Uh, and if that sounds, you know, kind of uh, strong and so forth, uh, that's because it's meant to be strong. Uh, Joshua is filthy. He is vile in what he is wearing. And again, he's somebody who should not be in the presence of the Lord. That's the point. Satan's pointing out something that's actually true, is that Joshua should not be able to be in God's presence. He's unfit to be in God's presence. You know, sometimes we think that, uh, that God kind of uh, overlooks our sin or that he turns a blind eye to our sin or, or brushes it under the, or sweeps it under the rug or, or whatever. But again, our holy God has to punish sin and he will punish sin. And we need to understand that and understand the fact that here we stand before God as well in our filthiness, uh, in our sin. Uh, and the gospel is that God's grace comes to sinners such as us through his son. But again, before we understand that, we need to understand that we are guilty, that we are filthy, just as Joshua was uh, in his defiled garments. We're not fit as well. However, that brings us to the good news of, first we had the problem, now we have the provision in verses 4 and 5. The provision. Again, if if Zechariah descended there, uh, we would the Bible would end with Adam and Eve sinning in, in Eden and them being condemned forever, being kicked out of his presence out of the garden, and that's the end of the story. And God could be completely just. He would be completely just and good in doing so. Uh, but we have, by the grace of God alone, we have the provision uh, that we see here in verses 4 and 5. And, but before we look at verses 4 and 5, you look back at verse 2, that verse that I skipped, uh, we'll see that the angel of the Lord, or God himself, he comes and he acts as an advocate for Joshua. Here he is sitting on the throne as the judge, but he intercedes for Joshua. He steps in for Joshua, and he rebukes the accuser, and he rebukes his accusations, and he doesn't do it because he says they're not true. Again, look at verse 2. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord, or Yahweh, rebuke you, O Satan, The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So again, God doesn't say to Satan, what you're saying is completely untrue. It's inadmissible. It's not true. You're you're fabricating things. Uh, He just tells him basically to hush up, to shut his mouth, uh, more specifically, to be quiet. And the reason he looks to, again, is not the, the worthiness or of Joshua or because he's lying, uh, but we see here it's because of God's own sovereign choosing of Joshua, his own sovereign choosing of Jerusalem. We see this again when he says, has not the Lord chosen Jerusalem in verse 2? And when he says, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? This is almost certainly referring to the exile itself where the people were sent out 
into the fire of exile uh, in Babylon and Persia, and then God bringing them out as you go and grab, snatch something out of the fire to keep it from burning completely, uh, that God has acted uh, on behalf of his people. So we see this here again where um, God decides to uh, rebuke Satan because of his own prerogative, because he's God, and he chose to rescue the people here. Um, now, notice in verse 4, we see that his filthy garments are exchanged for clean ones. Uh, I, he's not left where he is with these defiled garments. God doesn't say, you know what? I'm not a God who judges. I'm done with that kind of stuff. That was a long time ago before we knew better, Satan. And uh, he's fine with me. Joshua can be in his filthy garments. Love is love. Let's move on. Uh, No, he removes these filthy garments from him. We see this in verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. So they come and take off these defiled garments from Joshua the high priest, and they have a provision for him, which is clean garments that they come and put on him. Uh, Again, it says, remove his filthy garments, and then God tells him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Again, the gospel is not about the fact that God just overlooks our sin or the very common belief on the street uh, oftentimes is that God is just a God who doesn't really care about sin anymore and he's or he's just God is love and what that means is that God sees our sin and just says you know what just forget about it and move on and and that's what Christianity is that God just overlooks our sin and just forgives us and it's kind of we're still there filthy and so forth no that's not the gospel Uh, The gospel is that guilty people who deserve to be condemned, who do not belong in his presence, he takes their filthy garments away, and he has them clothed with clean garments that they're put on. This morning when I was in Conway, uh, it just so happened I was going to be preaching from a different text, uh, and I don't know how in God's providence, because i could have sworn that I remembered uh, recommending that we do sing the church's one foundation, uh, but instead, and they have the Psalter hymnal also, uh, and you just look in the back and they go alphabetically and you can find the number really easily. But uh, instead we sang uh, the song, which goes perfectly with Zechariah 3, uh, which is Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Um, And uh, it, it goes perfectly with what is happening here. Uh, what uh, von Zinzendorf talks about here, Jesus, thy blood, Jesus' blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. The clothing that we wear, that we're clothed in, is not us realizing we're filthy, so we go somewhere else and we try really hard and we come before God now and we stand before the accuser and say, I did my devotions every day this morning, I worked really hard, so forth, and now I'm standing here. no. We stand arrayed in Christ's righteousness, in his his works, in what he has done. He is our substitute who stands before us. He says in in verse 2, Bold shall I stand in thy great day, when we're judged by God. Uh, And I would say again, when the devil accuses us as well, 
we'll be, we should be bold. Uh, if you're thinking of yourself and how good you've been or anything else, you should not be bold at all. You should tremble in fear. Uh, but if we do what we read about here in, in Zechariah and what uh, von Zinzendorf writes about here, we should be bold in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. From Jesus, again, we put on, we, are, we actually have the righteousness of Christ given to us, uh, not just that we're considered not to have ever sinned, that is true, but we're given all the credit that Jesus accrued, that he earned through his perfect life on our behalf. Uh, we have that. If you're a Christian, you have that now. And that is why, even though we still struggle with sin, we can go before God into his presence. We do have a righteousness. We do have new garments that we can wear. We've been clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, that's why we can stand boldly before God, is because he has clothed us uh, with Jesus' own righteousness. And this is uh, very similar, this portion of Zechariah, to Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson goes so far as to refer to Zechariah as little Isaiah, because there are so many allusions to the book of Isaiah. And again, you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, that Isaiah is uh, his call really into ministry, and he's there in a, another heavenly uh, throne room scene and, and uh, realizes pretty quickly when he sees the seraphim flying around and uh, singing out, holy, 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 and uh, he realizes correctly that he should not be there. He doesn't belong in the presence of God and the holy angels because he's unclean. You know, again, he's not like us today where, or so many today where we think, you know, who's to judge? God is all love. I'm here in God's presence. Here I stand, you know, only the Lord can judge me. I think I've told people before, I had a student who once had that uh, tattooed across his chest, only God can judge me. She's like, you have no idea what you are saying here. But uh, uh, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Remember, I'm undone. Woe is me. But just as we see here in chapter 3, it's the Lord who takes the initiative. And he doesn't just say, Isaiah, forget about it. Okay, I don't care about your lips. Or here, Joshua, I don't care about your filthy garments. Uh, no, in verse 4, after they remove his filthy garments, he says, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I'll close you with pure vestments. Remember in Isaiah that one of the angels flies over with a coal burning from the altar. And he touches that coal to his lips and says, your sin has been atoned for. Uh, your sin has been taken away. It's been covered. Something has to be done about our sin, and it's not just God overlooking it. That's not what God does. But again, it's that God atones uh, for our sin. You see this expiation. When you take a, a sponge, and when you squeeze it, uh, when I was a kid, I didn't know that you could use sponges in two ways. I thought it was really just uh, to uh, squeeze and have water come out, but also when you squeeze it ahead of time and put it on something, and it will suck up whatever. And this expiation, our sin being taken away from us, our sin being taken away from us, but also the covering of us by Christ's righteousness, uh, that we're not left naked there, we're given Christ's righteousness. 
You know, Martin Luther's, I think, probably the most quotable of the reformers, and uh, Luther was very uh, vivid and, and uh, very bold in his speaking with Satan and his, his uh, retorts back when he would be accused and so forth of not being, uh, of being a hypocrite and of being a sinner and so forth. And Luther uh, said this in his commentary on Galatians, and it's good advice for us today, that when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. When we go, uh, when we are accused, now again, we can have our conscience where God by his word is reminding us and putting his finger on some sin in our life for us to turn away from. Uh, But when we're accused in a way that makes us want to turn away from God, not to turn to God, but turn away from God, uh, we don't go back to to Satan and and look at our own righteousness. We look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, as Pastor Matt is going on Wednesday nights with uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and I know he's been quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones a lot, and I believe it was Lloyd-Jones who said, for every look you take at yourself, and, you know, some self-examination is not bad. Uh, it's actually good and biblical. But for every look you take at yourself, make sure to take, I can't remember if he says seven or ten, uh, looks at the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, remember, Christ, again, is our righteousness. So we have the provision here where Joshua has his soiled, filthy, vile garments taken off of him, and he's given clean garments, and his iniquity is taken away. And just notice quickly at the end of verse 5, Uh, Zechariah gets in on this vision. He actually speaks as well. And he says, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This turban uh, that's put on is almost certainly the turban that the high priest, which is what Joshua was, would wear one day a year. There's one day a year where where the priest would put on this special turban because there's one day a year, the day of Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement, where only the high priest, nobody else was allowed to, this man who had been selected, who had to be of the, the tribe or lineage of Levi, and not only that, he even had to be able to trace his ancestry back to Aaron, where only one of those men was selected and allowed to go into not just the temple, but into the Holy of Holies, and to sprinkle the blood on the altar to make atonement for the people. Uh, that is almost certainly what is being talked about here, is... Joshua's ability to go before the people and make atonement for them, to intercede for the people as high priest. And again, it's Satan who's saying, Joshua does not belong in your presence. He's sinful. You cannot have him here. And again, we have the provision that God has made for us. And what this is ultimately pointing to, and that's our last point, which is the promised one in verses 6 through 10, uh, the promised one. And this has to do with the question uh, of what do we do about bulls and goats? And, you know, I ask my students at DCS sometimes uh, when we're talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, you know, why is it that we no longer uh, come to church this morning or this evening with goats or bulls? We could go to Brother Kay's farm and do y'all still got goats and everything? 
brings them here and have them slaughtered up here in front and so forth. You know, thankfully we do not do, rightfully we do not do that. Again, why do we not also have priests to do that anymore though? And that is because the reality of these things, uh, what they were all pointing to, has come to pass. Uh, the, the shedding of blood of bulls and goats was never in and of itself an end, but was pointing to the one who would come and shed his own blood and give himself for us. Now, verses, uh, if we jump ahead to verses 8 and 9, um, and God encourages him or exhorts him in verses 6 and 7 to walk in obedience uh, to keep the priesthood with his brothers almost certainly referring to the Levitical priesthood here. But in verses 8 and 9, uh, we have some of this imagery we sometimes get caught up with and miss everything else. And uh, it's very difficult to understand exactly what he's talking about here with the stone and the eyes and so forth. And uh, I'll just read it. It says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone, With seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a day. Uh, The stone with the seven eyes, eyes are ordinarily used for wisdom, that God sees everything, seven again being a complete number, just God is omniscient, he's wise, he knows what he's doing. Uh, We shouldn't look at this part, it's a little difficult, does it mean eyes or does it mean facets or what is it? Uh, and then miss everything that's clearly talked about here in the scripture. Again, just one more time, even our confession of faith says, uh, if things are unclear in the Bible, we should interpret those things by the things which are clear. And there are some things that are very clear here in what we're reading. Uh, somebody called the branch is going to come. Somebody called the branch. Again, the end of verse 8, that God is going to bring his servant the branch. Again, Sinclair Ferguson, I agree with him 100%, and it's pretty rare to find anybody who disagrees with this, that Zechariah is showing his hand that his favorite book that he was most influenced by when he wrote this prophecy uh, was Isaiah, the prophet. And in Isaiah chapter 11, something that we usually talk about during Christmas time, and, and rightly so, and, uh, but should not neglect during the rest of the year as well, Uh, is about this one who's going to come from David's line, this king who's going to come, this promised one, this Messiah. And in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, Isaiah is prophesying. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father, this, this family. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this branch is going to come, this, this son of David. Remember when Jesus comes in Jerusalem, they're shouting out, son of David. Uh, they know he's the king who's coming. And he's coming as king, but he's also coming to make atonement for his people. The branch is coming to make atonement for his people. And again, if you just look back in verse 3 as we get close to wrapping up here. Uh, but Speaking of the Day of Atonement, uh, at the end of chapter, uh, verse 9, I'm sorry, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I, God, will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Uh, I will remove the iniquity in a single day. This day is the Day of Atonement. 
this day every year the Jews would celebrate where they'd bring animals, and again, the priests would go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the people by bringing in the blood of an animal and sprinkling it on the altar in the Holy of Holies uh, to make atonement for the people. And if I wasn't turning in the Bible, I'd use my fingers to say atonement to make sure uh, that we realize this is pointing ahead. Now, when we come to the New Testament, and in particular, when we come to the book that talks about Jesus Christ as our priest, the one who intercedes for us, the one who offers the sacrifice, but himself is the sacrifice. As we come to Hebrews and we come to chapter 10, we find out exactly again who this one is, uh, this one who will purify and take away the iniquity in one day. And again, of course, that is the Lord Jesus Christ in fulfilling what was going on on the Day of Atonement. And the author of Hebrews talking about these, the Day of Atonement, he's talking about the animals, this thing that they'd have going on every single year. Remember, this would be going on in the time of Jesus as well, that in Jerusalem people would be bringing animals and, and killing them and, and sprinkling the blood. In verse 4, the writer to Hebrews says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That was never the purpose. David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Abraham and those in glory right now are there because Jesus died for their sins, not because of the animal blood that was shed for them. But in verse 5, it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And then he talks about him coming to do the will of God. But then here, the last portion in Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14, and this is what you need to understand and I need to understand from Zechariah chapter 3 in terms of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice of himself in order that we might be in perfect, holy, righteous garments, says this, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. This is what the Hebrews are tempted to go back to. That's why I think the book of Hebrews had to have been written while the temple was still standing. Uh, He says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and again, that's not Jesus bringing the perfect kid with him that had been bred just right. Of course, it's him bringing himself. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. And then this verse right here in verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Uh, All that is to say, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because he went on the cross, gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross, shed his blood, made atonement on the cross, in order that you and I can stand before God as perfect forever. No more sacrifices need be made. That's why we don't offer sacrifices anymore, blood sacrifices. It's been done. Jesus did it on the cross. Again, as we look at this picture in Zechariah, it's good news that sinners can stand before God, not because we're righteous, but we've been made right because we're with Christ, and He is righteous. Let me just end with this little story. I just had a difficult time remembering 
uh, or a, a difficult in terms of a painful time remembering when I was a, a freshman, this isn't that great of a story, but when I was a freshman in high school and a little rambunctious, one of the best classes I ever took was a cooking class. It was an elective. It wasn't home ec, it was just cooking. And we had Mrs. Prideau, and she was a very uh, much advanced in age, uh, nice lady who only came to the school to teach cooking. She had been retired, and she taught cooking, anything for one period and then went home. And she brought uh, one time a, a bread mouse. It was, it was bread that had been hardened over decades and came from her great-great-grandma. I think it was even in France or somewhere. And it had hardened into, and it was a mouse, and it was made out of bread from a long time ago. And she brought it into the classroom and was showing it to us. I don't remember why exactly or anything. But um, I remember her showing it to us. And uh, I remember, uh, I can't remember if it was that day or the next day, but uh, I happened to be playing around with this mouse. And uh, I dropped it. And it shattered into a bunch of pieces. And Miss Perdoe, who's as small and quiet and meek as you can imagine, I remember her shaking with rage at me. And I did not realize, I probably should have, but at the time, that how big of a deal this was for her. And I remember uh, the next day, uh, I mean, I remember her saying some things I can't even repeat her here. Uh, I didn't, but she was furious. And uh, I remember coming to school the next day, and, and she had, I don't want to say she had gotten over it, but she had truly forgiven me. Uh, she was in a much better mood, and I remember some of the kids being, oh, and pointing at me, pointing me out to the teacher, to Mrs. Perdoe, about that I did this, and her telling them, you know, I've forgiven, he's, he's good. It was an accident, and I've forgiven him. It kind of reminded me of this, I was guilt. I really had. I shouldn't have been, and I was playing around with this mouse, and I broke it. And she is the one who had the right, really, to forgive me. I couldn't have some other student come and tell me, don't worry about it. Uh, she was furious, too. But she did forgive me uh, for this. And all the ones basically accusing me, all my classmates, she basically rebuked them and said, look, I've forgiven him. He's good. And it sort of reminds me of this and, and our standing for God. God, not because he just looks away, but because he gave his son, can forgive us. And we can stand before Satan, and again, like Martin Luther say, you don't know the half of my sin, uh, but I can stand before here because of Jesus, not my own righteousness. So again, let us never forget that. Uh, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, Christianity, that the gospel is not about us cleaning ourselves up and making ourselves right, Lord, and perhaps being accepted by you, but that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us, uh, that you made him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, that we don't, Lord, you don't accept anybody but sinners. Uh, it is only sinners who need a savior. And we thank you that we see nobody in the scriptures being too sinful uh, to be saved. So, Lord, would you help us to remember that always? Uh, Lord, would you help us, uh, yes, to live in light of that and to strive for godliness and, and freedom from those shackles that bind, the sin that deceives and our flesh. But Lord, may we always remember our righteousness is not our own. It's our righteousness is in heaven at your right hand. So would you be with us again? We thank you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.